Welcome to Inside the Media Minds. I'm your host, Christine Blake. This show features in-depth interviews with tech reporters who share everything from their biggest pet peeves to their favorite stories and give you a behind-the-scenes look at the life of a technology reporter. We'll learn about the person behind the byline and get their thoughts on the top trending stories. From our studio at W2 Communications, let's go Inside the Media Minds. Hey everyone, this is Christine Blake, the host of Inside the Media Minds. I'm here today with Sarah Fisher from Axios. Thanks so much, Sarah, for uh, joining us on the podcast today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, So we're really excited to talk to you this morning. Um, You've been a reporter for a number of years now and worked at several prominently known publications like the Washington Post, CNN, Politico, and now you're at Axios. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your journey to journalism and the path you've taken so far? Sure. So I started out in ad sales for various publications, um, including Politico, and that's where I met the founders of the company that is now Axios, and uh, really tried to learn as much about the media industry as I could on the business side. So mostly in advertising sales, but also subscription sales, events, um, you know, digital production, branded content. And when it came time for the founders of Axios to launch the company, they were looking for someone to cover the media industry that had experience working sort of on all sides of the media industry. And so we thought that uh, this could be a really good fit. And as you mentioned, I've been there for uh, almost two years now. We launched in January 2017, and so far, so good. That's awesome. So you cover an interesting beat there. So typically on the podcast, we have a lot of tech reporters or cybersecurity reporters and some federal, and you cover the media beat. Can you tell us a little bit about that and specifically what types of stories you cover? Sure. So I cover media trends, which means uh, that I take a look at patterns in the business, mostly business and technology sides, also a little bit with technology, uh, sorry, politics. So if you think about inflation and costs, or if you're thinking about the decline of linear TV, the rise of streaming, understanding what types of products are on the rise, you know, voice assistance, VR, AR, new technologies. Those are the general themes of what I cover, but then we'll also cover the rise of sort of some politically focused media trends. So how does fake news and misinformation change the way uh, we think about elections? Or how does the president having 24-7 access to you know, Twitter and connectivity to uh, these technology tools help him reach Americans more directly than previous presidents have been able to do? And how does that change his relationship with the news media? So we just cover a wide range, a wide array of trends across mm-hmm. the media sector. Okay. That's, is that a difficult area to cover? I'm sure there are some challenges associated with it, especially with some of the more controversial topics. It is because oftentimes the truth is not something that a lot of people want to understand or hear about. So, for example, there has been no evidence of systemic or compelling evidence of bias by technology companies in the way that they build their algorithms for search or for news distribution. And yet a lot of people don't want to believe that they want to believe that technology companies are so biased against certain political parties 
Um, it can also be difficult when trying to understand some of the positive effects of these technologies on society. Mm-hmm. I think there was such a rush to, you know, uh, kind of demonize Facebook after mm-hmm. it had uh, taken a rocky turn in its relationship with publishers, yet if you think about what Facebook means for so many people around the world, I mean, 88% of its user base is global. It's not in the United States. And for those people who oftentimes mobile is their first form of connectivity, Facebook is synonymous with the Internet. It's helping them connect with people they would have never been able to do so. It's helping people migrate. It's helping people overthrow dictator regimes. You think about what happened with the Arab Spring. A lot of people don't think that would have happened without companies like Facebook or Twitter or Google. And so there's a... The, the most difficult part of my job is trying to explain, uh, be devil's advocate for a lot of the technologies that are entering the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are so quick to, to think that, you know, some of them are making everything worse. But in reality, if you take a look at other innovations like cars, uh, there is always going to be a period of decades where you have to really be mindful of how you regulate them. But once you become... Uh, good at regulating them, they become a net benefit for society. Yeah, it's almost like an adjustment period. It's like it needs to, people will always be on either side of the fence, and then it kind of evens out eventually. Yeah, and it's a long adjustment period. I think that's the thing that uh, that patience, as a reporter, you have to know to have the foresight to think about, you know, what are these technologies going to mean, not just for me, but the generations after me. They're not going to go away. We're not going to move backwards. Can you imagine if we just, like, that we're not having Google search anymore. I mean, it's, oh we're, they're not going away. So <laughs> it's about thinking it long-term. And and the regulation of these technologies, like I said, with cars, I mean, it will take decades to really figure out a way to meaningfully balance them so that they are a net good for our society. But people who want to rush to conclusions that we should shut things down or we should force, thing, force them to censor, you know, uh, different beliefs, I don't think that they necessarily want to hear always the other side. So that's probably the most difficult part of my job. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So how do you think, how has technology impacted the media landscape overall? I know we talked about Facebook and Google, but in your opinion, how do you think it has impacted the media? I think for one, the media used to, if you look at it economically, before 2000, before the newspaper industry sort of took an ad revenue uh, turn, the news media industry had the power to decide what the national conversation was going to be in a very linear way. So if you were a newspaper, you printed that paper and somebody else read it. If you were a radio broadcaster, you put out your radio broadcast and someone else listened. If you were a television station, you put out nightly and morning news and other people watched. Well, the Mm -hmm. technology has created two-way communication. So if you are a newspaper, you no longer have the option to just dictate what else gets gets put out there without listening to what your consumers are interested in and are looking for and how they're shaping the conversation. How many times have you gone on even a newspaper website or even a television broadcast and the video that they're playing from a fire or from a gun protest is actually user-generated? This concept of two-way communication has completely changed the way that we consume the news, the way that we perceive the news. And if you're not willing to dive into that and to use new tools and technologies, whether it's Facebook or Snapchat, uh, to capture that user-generated content and also to reach users in new ways, you're not going to be able to gain their attention anymore. And so that's been a real struggle for some of the legacy media companies that 
you know, have been slower to adapt, mainly because they just haven't had the infrastructure to be flexible. Now, that makes sense. It makes me think of um, a couple times there were some incidents on airlines. I remember Southwest and a bunch of people took their Facebook Live videos, and then I kept seeing media reaching out to those users asking to use their constant content for their stories. So that's an interesting point. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, what are you currently focus on, focusing on, or what is primarily catching your interest right now? Scale is very interesting. You have massive technology companies that were created after we had developed institutions and regulatory bodies and regulations around communications. So they were able to grow so big and so fast with almost no stopping point. If you look at some of the other modes of communication, whether it be um, you know cable, satellite, uh, radio, newspapers even, they all are regulated because laws were created decades ago to manage them. There's nothing that exists today to curb the growth of technology companies. And because of that, they've been able to get so big that media companies that are strapped to regulation, they can't really compete. And so what I'm focused on a lot is how do they compete? And oftentimes it's merging with one another to to achieve that scale. So we are looking at a lot of mergers and acquisitions and in particular, in the linear broadcast mm-hmm. space, you saw that AT&T just acquired Time Warner. We know that right. Comcast acquired NBC Universal. There's been talks of Verizon having interest in CBS. So that's a big thing that I'm interested in. I think we're also really taking a look at the, uh, when it comes to that regulatory piece, what is the balance between innovation and regulation when it comes to free speech? So you hearing, you're hearing a lot of uh, censorship conversations on Capitol Hill, you know, should social media companies censor out hate speech or things like that. I think the third and final thing that we're really interested in is uh, direct-to-consumer. Again, so those traditional media companies, they haven't really had good direct-to-consumer relationships where they can facilitate two-way conversation, but tech companies are really good at that. And so are we going to see, you know, traditional media companies buy tech companies so they can get closer to that? You know, there's a lot of rumblings about someone buying Kendora, Twitter, uh, mm-hmm. Or are they going to build their own? You're hearing about Disney now building its own over-the-top streaming service to be able to compete with Netflix. That's sort of the third big trend that we have our eyes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine how that's going to pan out with all these different companies merging and um, competing against one another. Yeah, it'll be an interesting uh, land. Uh, it'll, it'll be an interesting grab bag. You know, everyone, there's only so many properties that do direct-to-consumer well. And what I mean by that is if you look at the home screen of your phone, there's only about 12, 10, 12 apps that you have on your home screen that you are within a thumb's reach of your attention. Mm-hmm. But typically, the three most used apps are going to be a mail agent, so Google or Microsoft Exchange, some sort of a social media app, and then some sort of a search engine. And then you really only have a few other apps that are going to be within thumb's reach. In the top ten right now, it's Pandora, Snapchat, Google Maps, uh, I believe Amazon, and then Facebook, Facebook Messenger, Instagram, Google Search, Google Maps, etc. So oh, wow. it's it's not a lot of people that get your time and attention, and so whoever's trying to buy those or become involved with those, check partnership with those companies is the is the big hot news story. Yeah, that's funny. You made me want to look at my phone right now and see what I what I gravitate to first. <laughs> I might yeah, Spotify. And- <laughs> 
Spotify's up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Uber, you know, some sort of ride-sharing uh, service is oh, yeah. up there as well. Oh, yeah, I'm sure of it. So I'm interested in, in knowing what um, maybe was one of your favorite stories that you've written or one that will always be memorable to you. Well, my favorite, I always tell people, is not a media story, but it kind of is a media story. It's when I was at CNN and I covered the missing plane, MH370. Oh, wow. That, that was an interesting story because, you know, the one lesson that I learned and I think everyone in the media learned is that no, any time humans go missing or are trapped, uh, or their fate is unknown, the story doesn't end until we have we find out what happens to them. Mm-hmm. The same sort of thing happened with the missing Thai boys in the cave. You know, oh, yeah. that was 24-7 coverage until they got those boys out. Right. And I think it, it, it captured the hearts and attention of people because people want to know what happens to other people. So I think that was one of the most interesting stories I've covered in my career. As far as the most interesting media story, I think the AT&T Time Warner trial is probably the most interesting story mm-hmm. just because... You have the significance of the trial is that this is what happens because of the boom of technology, because, you know, traditional telecom companies and media companies have to compete with the Netflixes and Googles of the world. But the trial itself was so outdated. I mean, the, the courtroom was a small courtroom. It maybe held 50 people. No one could bring in their phone or laptop. There was no working clocks. There was no windows. It was this wow. dystopian setting, exactly, for for what is supposed to be the trial that will dictate the future. And so that was a really fun story to cover. And it was based in Washington. I'm based in Washington. So I liked that I had a short commute. (laughs) That's a good bonus for sure. So I would love to hear a little bit about that. It was a Future of Media Trends panel. I was just reading up on it a little bit that you held, I think, um, earlier in the summer. I think it would be great to hear some of the, uh, the thoughts that came out of that panel. So at the panel we had so at the panel we had Facebook's Campbell Brown, the head of news partnerships, talk to us about something new that they're doing to work better with news publishers. And to give you the backstory, technology companies have had a hard time working with news publishers because their goal, their mission is to be as open and inclusive to all voices as possible. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems that news publishers have is they want to be the most authoritative voices on these platforms because they invest so much in, you know, real journalism and in providing truthful news. But what technology companies are grappling with is even though they want to elevate good news, they don't want to discriminate against other voices uh, while doing so. So what Facebook announced with me on that panel was that they were going to be creating a separate bucket for news publishers' advertisements on their platform that would be separate from political ads. And it's very in the weeds, but essentially publishers were very upset that their ads were being put into the same group as political candidates or advocacy groups. They argued that when we promote our posts through Facebook ads, it's not because we are trying to promote one sort of, you know, outlook or belief. It's just because we're trying to get more traffic. Mm-hmm. What Facebook or you know Google will tell you is that yes, but there are some people who consider themselves news publishers that do have an outlook. Maybe it's a state-sponsored outlet like Russia Today or Sputnik, and when they promote posts, it can be seen as political because they have a particular view. So that's what was talked about on my panel. I also talked to uh, a few other people from both the publishing and 
you know, marketing science media about how they're working with big tech platforms. Overall, I think the main message was that it's complicated. It's that, you know, the incentives of a technology company to work with a news company are much less so than a news company needs a technology company for traffic. So this dichotomy is creating an imbalanced economy that's really hitting news publishers hard. And that difficult uh, time period has, you know, been lasting for about the past 10 years, but it just seems to be getting worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so this is a question that we ask all of our guests on the show, and it's, what do you think will be one of the biggest headlines in 2018? I think that because the economic landscape is so hard for news publishers, ownership is going to continue to rapidly change. So we saw after the news industry took a plummet in 2000, a lot of hedge funds and private equity firms started buying up newspapers. And the reason for that is because for so long, newspapers were cash flow positive properties. In many cases, print still is. You look at Time, which was just bought by Mark Benioff, the CEO and co-founder of Salesforce. You know, so many people are saying, oh, Time's such a dying brand. It's such a dying magazine. Well, yes, it's losing subscriptions, but it's still the number one most subscribed to paper uh, property in the country. It's still profitable. Right. So I think what you're going to see is more and more ownership is going to transition in some of the mainstream media properties that we consume every day so that uh, it's either, A, because individual rich billionaires want to do it sort of as philanthropy. You look at Jeff Bezos buying the Washington mm-hmm. Post. Right. You look at Lorraine Powell Jobs, Steve Jobs, Widow buying the Atlantic, Mark Benioff, you know, buying time. Expect that trend to continue. And then also sure. expect uh, and then also expect other, you know, legacy media companies, let's say, you know, like Time Warner, for example, or NBC, to be gobbled up by bigger tech or telecom companies that can afford uh, to invest in them and potentially turn their businesses around. Hmm. Okay. We'll have to see what happens with that, right? Yeah, <laughs> be a, a, lot. a lot to watch. Exactly. And then I would love to, I would love for our listeners to hear your perspective on how Axios is different than some other publications out there. What sets it apart? Sure. So before we launched Axios, the three founders, Jim Vandeheim, Mike Allen, and Roy Schwartz, did a listening tour when they left Politico. They went and met with some of the top minds in technology, media, advertising, communications, about what trends they've seen throughout their careers. And if they could build a media company from the ground up today, what would they do differently? And I think the answer was that people don't have the time and attention to devote uh, hours to watching news broadcasts or hours to reading a print paper. Instead, what they really need and what they really want is to get news in a really short-form, consumable way. So when we developed Axios, our goal was to provide most news stories within just a couple hundred words. Right. And that was the biggest thing that we did. The other thing that we did is we made... We decluttered the news. So what do I mean by that? News, when you go on some websites, they're so heavy with, you know, really crowded and annoying ads 
that you don't even <laughs> want to read the website. So, so true. We, yes, we stripped our site of all of that. We made it mobile first. There's only one ad unit, and it runs seamlessly with all the content. Um, we also keep the ads just as short as we keep the content on the site because, quite frankly, who wants to be engaging with really long, annoying ads? And I think the last thing that we did is we picked futuristic topics. You see so many people uh, or news outlets that are fading out auto sections. The New York Times Mm -hmm. sensitive their print auto section. Why is that? Because the future of auto is technology. Uh, Axios today launched an autonomous vehicle section. That is our version of auto. And so I think what we're trying to do is think about what are the topics of the future, what are the ways that we're going to be able to connect with our audience uh, in ways that are going to be relevant to them, not just today, but five years from today and 10 years from today. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I'm, I know a lot of um, people at our company get the Axios newsletters. I know I subscribe to yours. Um, I think that's a great way to deliver the news as well, just in everyone's inbox every day. Yeah, and it's direct to consumer, right? There's nothing that's there's no delivery mechanism between my company and you. And that trend is it's not just native to digital media companies. It's everybody. If you look at why AT&T bought Time Warner, it's because Time Warner for so many years, decades, had to go through a wholesaler. It had to go through a telecom company to reach the consumer. And what you want to do to become a successful media company is you want to rip out that intermediary. You don't want a wholesaler. You want to go direct to the consumer. So that could be through a podcast. That could be through an email newsletter. It could be through a streaming company that you can build with the infrastructure of being bought by a telecom company like AT&T Time Warner. Yeah. And so that's, the, that's really the new trend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like people are getting their media in so many different ways, from social media to podcasts to um, newsletters. It's, it really runs the gamut nowadays of how everyone's consuming the news. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah, this has been really interesting. It's been great talking to you. I really appreciate your time coming on Inside the Media Minds this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. 